Right, welcome along to another episode of the How I Caught the Wrestling Bug podcast. I'm your host, David Lovell. Delighted to say, joining me for this week's episode, I kind of don't want to big it up too much because I don't want previous guests to listen to the show and go, well, you weren't that excited when I came on this sh- on your show. But uh, I am really glad to say that Oliver Kopp joins me this week here on the podcast. Oliver, how's it going? It's going very rough, very well. And I, I honestly couldn't wait to come on the show. It's been a while. I've been planning this for a while and the timing couldn't be any better. I wanted to say before we go any further that um, it's not a case of you not liking cheese on your pizza. It's just you can't <laughs> have it. It's true. Well, I was I was I was out to have pizza in Tacoma, I think it was, with Craig and a, a, a common friend of ours, Justin, and um, I ordered my pizza without cheese, and they looked at me like I had four eyes. But it's really just because if I have cheese on pizza. Uh, in in the U.S., not not over here. I always, always, always need a couple of tums afterwards, and it's just not worth it to me. That, that's just for anyone that listens to the uh, Brian and Vinny and Craig and Granny show who will, who will, who will get that reference. But um, we could do a whole podcast, you know, on your career and what you've done in wrestling. But um, this podcast is kind of how it all started, how you became a fan in the first place so if we were to go back right to the very beginning uh what is your earliest memory of wrestling well i grew up in texas and stereotypically when you think texas you kind of think world class in the in the 1980s and that's really what it was i watched world class every week on tv and i was a big fan of the bad guys i loved the Freebirds. didn't like them on eric so much but bruiser brody for instance was a big favorite of mine and i was completely mesmerized with that product it i mean a lot of people say it didn't hold up well but at the time it was pretty damn fine the next question is um which wrestlers captured your imagination as a kid so how how old were you when you sort of started watching world class i started watching when i was about six years old oh, okay. and yeah. I was kind of fascinated by the Fabulous Freebirds from day one because they were so different. They were so colorful and charismatic, and they were just kind of bad guys who did what they did for good reasons, and that always appealed to me. It still does when people have character depth and are a bit outside the box, and th- that was really what appealed to me about uh, about those guys. And uh, there's, there's one common misconception that people have when they hear Texas and think world-class. They think that world-class did shows all over Texas, and that couldn't really be further from the truth. They were a Dallas-based company, so their territory was Dallas, Fort Worth, Denton, and then down south on the interstate, um, Austin, New Braunfels, Waco, down to San Antonio and Corpus Christi, but they didn't even venture that far east because Se- um, Seattle, because Houston was only like a three-hour drive away from Dallas, but that was a totally different territory. And they certainly didn't come out west much. In fact, the first time they ever came to El Paso, which is on the very west tip of Texas, was in August 1983. And you can bet your ass that I pestered my parents for so long that they got us front row tickets to that show. But um, to be fair, it was kind of a bittersweet thing for me because I really wanted to see my wrestlers up close and personal, but I knew that two days later... My ass was going to be sitting on a plane bound for Germany and not come back. So it was kind of, I was looking forward to it, 
but I was kind of dreading because I dreading it at the same time because I was going to be moving away and I really didn't want to. But yeah, that was my first live wrestling memory. So I got the free words that Von Erickson, the main event. I got Bruiser Brody against Kamala. So I was happy. Like that, I, my world was okay on that evening. And that was the the first live show you attended. It was the first live world class show I attended. I I saw a Lucha Libre show when I was about seven. Oh, wow. but I have no no recollection of that. It obviously left a real impression on you then. <laughs> Well, I'm still not the biggest fan of Lucha, to be honest. I I think it's it's very much a cultural product. And while I was around Mexican-Americans most of the time, I really didn't pick up on the Lucha bug that much. I always preferred the tighter, more brutal, less comic-y wrestling that World Class had, for instance. And it's still the same for me today. So from the age of six to whatever age you are now, I won't ask you, but um, did you ever at any point lose interest in wrestling whatsoever? Did you ever sort of drift away from it at any point? Oh, yeah, big time. I I want to say that after my three, three persons in wrestling I was closest to died, I really shut off on wrestling and completely went into UFC instead. Like, I, I completely walked away. And honestly, if I if it hadn't been for All In, and then later AEW, I still wouldn't be back. So, basically, I it really hit me hard when Eddie Guerrero died. Right, yeah. I was going to say it was one of them, Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. Uh, yes, and the, the back story is their family house was about four houses down from ours. So while I didn't know wrestling or the Guerreros back then, I, I knew them as people. And Chavo, for instance, was almost my age. Like, we're a couple of years apart. So when you're in the same neighborhood, you kind of bump into each other. And Eddie was obviously a lot older, but I kind of gravitated towards him when, he was, when, when I saw him in wrestling later on. And I got to know him much better when when he was in WCW and then in WWE and seeing him go like that just when he was getting himself clean he, he wasn't clean cleaning but he was he was Eddie clean and that was a big step up from, from before so that kind of hit me hard and Chris Benoit also um yeah I, we had been tied for many years before that and I would have never pictured that he could be capable of doing what he did so between those two and Chris Canyon passing away, um, that kind of really soured me on wrestling. And it's not that I, I, I rejected wrestling or anything, but my passion for it had died. If that makes any sense. Yeah, and they were all. I, I'm trying to put a time frame on on when Chris Canyon passed away, but certainly Eddie was what November of '05, and then benoit was june of 07 which is not really much time uh, when, when, when did canyon die when when, when was that was that around the couple, same time no it was a couple of years afterwards okay but at that at that time i had already turned my back on wrestling work-wise the last thing i did in wrestling before that i was managing editor of WWE magazine over here the german edition for for a couple of years and that ended in 2009 and after that i did go to wrestlemania still every year because it would have been impolite not to because we were invited to the business partner lunches and all that stuff and not turning up would have been a bad look. But 
I wasn't passionate about it. The only thing I was really passionate about during WrestleMania weekend was the Hall of Fame ceremony. That was my personal WrestleMania. And I, there were years where I didn't even go to the main event, like WrestleMania itself, or I left early, which is insane if you consider that I flew across the Atlantic to, to be there. Yet I didn't even have enough passion for it anymore to watch the biggest show of the year in full. And I think that's pretty telling when, when your heart's not in it anymore. I mean, my passion for wrestling pretty much went at the same time as, as yours did. But obviously, you actually knew those guys. So I, I can't imagine how much harder it would have been for you. For me, just watching it as a fan, who obviously loved both those guys, you know, it, it was hard enough. But I, I can't imagine how it was how it was for you. So, um, But you say that All In was really what drew you back in? That's true. I, I hadn't watched any wrestling in probably five years or so. And I was in, in Chicago for a UFC thing, which I can't talk about in detail because it's still covered by an NDA. But um, basically, I was around that weekend and a, a friend who worked the show said, hey, come by. It's going to be fun. And I was like, oh, God, do I really want to go to a wrestling event now? But I went because I didn't have anything better to do that evening. And I was completely entertained for four hours. Like, I loved that event so much just seeing a couple of, of the old faces again and seeing seeing new people i'd never seen before and just just feeding off of the energy that people in the arena had and the passion that people like cody and the bucks and, and kenny omega exhibited on that evening it completely got me back in but into this style of wrestling not into what for instance wwe was presenting or even ring of honor if you compare Ring of Honor style to, to what was how, how All In was worked, there's a marked difference. And I don't have the passion for any of that part, which is why I care about AEW so much today, because it's not just the spiritual successor of, of, of All In, but the key people who put All In together are also founding fathers of AEW. So that's kind of where my passion lies these days. And of course, when it comes to AEW, you are sort of heavily involved uh, with them. You do, is it, is it the German commentary for Rampage? Yeah, well, just to be clear, TNT Germany is the station that airs AEW's products over here. Okay. I work for TNT Germany in that capacity. I do not work for AEW directly. Right. Right. Okay. But that's just the technicality. It doesn't really change anything because I'm... I'm known as being, even though I, I love AEW, I'm not blind to its faults. And I'm also a person who still has the utmost respect for, for Jim Cornette, for instance. So it's not, not like I'm rah-rah AEW. AEW is well, the I best. You, not to cut you off, but I think if you were to ask Tony Khan, I mean, he would say the same thing, that he has the utmost respect for Jim Cornette as well. That's true. That's true. Like, I personally could do without the personal insults to people because I feel that they cheapen the points you're actually making. But when you strip away all that bluster, he makes some really good observations. And, and a lot of stuff that I'm personally completely on board with. For instance, I, I, really, I really dislike when you make officials look like idiots. The referee right. specifically. Yeah, because I think Mike Kyoto, I don't know if you saw that, but Mike Kyoto had something to say about the refereeing in, in AEW. And he's right, in my opinion. And the, the next thing is when, when guys make ice-cold tags because they just made their own comeback before tagging out. That drives me up the walls. That's also a point Cornette always makes. 
And my, my biggest pet peeve is having too much interference and having people attack folks after the matches all the time. To me, that's, I'm going to use a cornet term here, it's lazy booking. So I, he makes a lot of good points. I just wish he wouldn't make them in such an abrasive manner. If that makes any sense. No, it makes complete sense. I do find it hard to listen to Cornette at, uh, at times. And to be honest with you, and I've said this before, when it comes to wrestling history, there's no one I'd rather listen to than Jim Cornette. You know, I think him and, and, and Meltzer, you know, there's probably, I can't think of two guys that know more about wrestling history than those two guys. And it's just a shame they're kind of at odds now. Uh, I wish they, you know, could patch up their differences. I think it's more on Cornette's side than, than Dave's. I think Dave was still consider Jim a friend if you if you were to ask him but uh, anyway moving away from that um, the next question is what are your viewing habits now so obviously I mean it's your job for, for TNT Germany to watch Rampage I, I take it you watch Dynamite as well every week first thing in the morning or live like it's literally the first thing I do every every when I wake up on Thursday morning for instance if I'm not watching live anyway it's but it's also the only thing I watch I don't watch anything else not on a regular schedule. I do watch New Japan every now and then, but um, that's mostly because I want to stay up to date with what's going on there because I did a New Japan pilot a couple of months ago, and if that gets picked up, I might actually end up being being their main commentator here. So I got to stay on top of things. Otherwise, it's going to be a rough experience because I, I got to tell you this much. After 15 years of just doing MMA commentary, getting back into pro wrestling commentary was incredibly difficult just the mindset is so different you know you don't have, right. you have different instincts and it's horrible and, and to think of that doing that for a japanese promotion when you don't really know the wrestlers or the storylines good luck with that <laughs> so will you be following but, you'll be following the g1 i would imagine which starts um i think it starts this weekend doesn't it does it not Unfortunately, it's going to be a pretty bare-bones G1 this year, considering mostly because of COVID and because it's really difficult for people like John Moxley, for instance, to justify going into the country for the G1 and then coming back. So I would say, yes, I'm looking forward to the G1, but it's probably the one I'm looking forward to the least in the past decade and a half, maybe. And that covers a lot of ground. I really can't wait. Sorry, I really can't wait until things go back to some sense of normalcy. And uh, because I look at all the guys who are now available to be involved in the G1. I mean, Brian Danielson, I'm sure that you know, one of the big reasons he came to AEW was so he could work on these other places. And uh, obviously that's not going to happen right away. But once things open up uh, properly again, I'm sure that he'll be, he'll be one of these people that be... Uh, really looking forward to being in the G1 and I can't wait to see some of the great matches that we could potentially get with him. Um, anybody else that you potentially see going over there and, and wrestling in Japan more when things open up well, back up? I've, I've, from the people from the New Japan office which I've had conversations over the past year, year and a half, there's a couple of folks they really sounded interested in. Darby Allen had been being mm -hmm. very far on top yeah. of that list. But um, the mistake I think they're making is they're picturing him for the for one of the junior tournaments. And I think that shouldn't be his appeal because his appeal is that he can hang with the big guys. Mm -hmm. yeah and I'm not I'm not sure if his if his standing kind of translates to to Japan if they try to use him like a junior heavyweight. Well, what about someone like Sammy Guevara? Do you think Sammy Guevara would be a good fit for that? 
I do think so, and I, I think it would be beneficial to both sides because Sammy is a, is a really great wrestler, and he's getting better every month, but he doesn't really get enough reps to where he becomes a world-class kind of guy. You know, it's difficult when you're only wrestling every other week. Yeah, I, 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 I've said, I've often said, I wish they they would have him wrestle more on the shows because yeah. I, I, every time I've seen him, I've been really impressed. I think he maybe had the best MJF match I've ever seen on Dark. Oh, that Knight. was great, what, great, three, great three, match. Ago? Yeah. Well, the, the bit of the problem is that Sammy gets injured a lot, mm. which yeah. should surprise nobody considering his style. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole Matt but, Hardy feud was, I think, was just jinx from the start i mean it was cursed from the start wasn't it i mean uh yeah that just was... just that chair shot alone oh, to the head yeah wow i haven't seen matt hardy bleed that much in 25 years but it looked great let's be honest <laughs> like if you want to make a highlight reel of stuff that looks real should that that one should be on it the next set of questions i have called rapid fire but they're not rapid fire at all, really. Um, favorite <laughs> wrestler of all time? Now, if you have to just pick one wrestler, I know it's a very, very difficult question to answer, but is there one guy that stands out to you? That's a loaded question. I mean, I, I followed wrestling in Japan a lot in the 90s. I followed most American promotions beginning in about 86, 87, but I do feel that I have favorites from certain periods. Like, for instance, Randy Savage would be my first pick for, for favorite wrestler, but only up until that point when he left the WWF. Mm -hmm. I really didn't like him that much in WCW. And <laughs> interestingly, the one time he went to Japan, um, I was there live, and I was really looking forward to his match, and he completely shit the bed. The, the match against Rick Steiner at the Tokyo Dome. I was like, oh God. And that's my that's the final match I ever saw him have. So it's gonna be hard because recency bias is a thing and if if you if you ask me who my favorite wrestler today is, it would be Adam Page. Hangman. Right. Yeah. But how do you compare a hangman page to a Kerry Von Eric or that's the thing. a Randy I mean, Savage? The, the question really needs to be who are your favorites from each decade? Because it obviously it changes and you can't really compare I mean, how do you compare Kenny Omega to Ric Flair? Things like that. I mean, it's you know different different eras. But I guess the question sort of is, who was your favorite for the longest time? Who left the biggest mark on you? And I, would it would it be Randy Savage? Would you say? It would have to be, and I'll tell you why. After we moved to Germany, um, I was kind of morose for about two years. I really didn't want to be there. I wanted to go home, and you know. I was missing my American friends and American TV and American food and American everything. And I was basically going from a middle-sized American city to a podunk town in the German countryside where the local Catholic priest who ran the church also taught at school. So we're, we're talking about that, that type of, you know, culture shock. And we only had three television channels back then and they were all public, public broadcasting. So that was kind of bad. And, Around late 1985, we finally got cable over here, and I discovered something a channel you're probably going to be very familiar with. It was called Sky Channel mm -hmm. from the UK, yep. and I discovered a magic thing there. 
every Saturday and Sunday morning, they had a thing called the Fun Factory, which aired all those favorite cartoons of mine that I used to love in the States. I realized they aired Three's Company five times a week as well, which was my favorite show and is still to this day my favorite show of all time. And one Wednesday evening, I turned on my TV to Sky because usually when, when I was done with my homework, I, I would watch Sky for an hour or two, or maybe sometimes maybe three hours. And I saw this guy in a, in a sparkling robe wearing a headband and ski goggles walk to the ring. And he had a beautiful woman with him. He was wrestling a dude I could best describe as my next door neighbor from El Paso. Average build. Looked like your typical Mexican-American. Good looking guy, but was, wasn't quite as charismatic as Randy Savage. So my first WWF match I ever saw ended up being Randy Savage winning the Intercontinental title from Tito Santana. And I was hooked. That's a pretty good introduction at the time because Hell yeah. there was there was plenty of bad introductions to the WBF at that time. That that's that's probably the best one you could have could have had around that that's, time. And and that's the thing. Again, this is also something bittersweet because right after that Randy Savage match, they had the Heart Foundation against the Killer Bees, which was really good. Yeah. That the next match on that show was was Don Morocco in a martial arts match against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and they <laughs> tore the house down. And the main event was a cage match between Bruno Sammartino and Rowdy Roddy Piper. That was my first WWF wrestling show. And the next day I went to newsagents, bought a television magazine, and just kind of looked through through Sky Channel's programming, looking for anything that right, kind of that was, the only, that was the only way you found out what was on back then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. no internet, no word of mouth. Exactly. Like, yeah. People don't, realize, the... people don't realize the struggles that we had to... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, back when you had to buy wrestling magazines at the newsstand. So, and I saw that three days later, there was a show on called All-Star Wrestling. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I, I turned on that show on, on that evening, and it went over like a turd. Like, I was, I was having high hopes based on what I had seen. But what I actually got, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read this one result here, was Corporal Kirshner and Danny Spivey against Johnny K9 and Mr. X, a match that went four minutes and felt like four hours. And I thought, all right, this was bad, but it's got to get better from here. Boy, was I wrong, because that was followed up with Ted RCD and Tony Atlas against Tiger Chung Lee and Neil Carr. And I don't ha- I don't remember much about that match, mostly because it was like just two minutes or so. But I do remember that it felt like those guys were walking in molasses. I was like, <laughs> this can't be the same promotion. And it did get a bit better from there. I got Paul Wardorf in a squash. And oh, then I got really excited because they announced a world tag team title match. And I was thinking back to the Freebirds and the Von Erics. And I, was, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Well, it wasn't. It was the Dream Team defending Beefcake and Valentine. And their challenges were, listen to this, Apollo the Greek and Jose Luis Rivera. And the whole match went about two minutes. Womp, womp. <laughs> so complete, you know what? complete night and day between the two shows. Complete night and day, and I was—I I actually was close to turning off the TV, but I, I was figuring. So, okay, I stuck through the shit for until now. 
I might as well st- keep watching it until the main event. And that actually turned it around. Because it was the British Bulldogs. And it was the first time I ever saw those guys on screen against, it was Brooklyn Brawler, um, Steve Lombardi, and I think Iron Mike Sharp. I may be wrong on this, but I, I think it was those two. And they tore the house down. And I was hooked again. And that was really my favorite period, like 86 to 89 WWF. And your favorite match of all time? Is there one match that stands out to you that you could pick for that? Oh, God. That's another loaded <laughs> question. Well, recency bias is a thing again. I think Adam Page and Kenny Omega against the Young Bucks was the best match I've seen in decades. However, and this is going to come out of left field, my favorite match of all time, and no disrespect to all the great Japanese matches I've seen, and I could probably rattle off about 100 matches off the top of my head that should be in a discussion for this, but my favorite match of all time, the match I've watched more than every other match in history, was the tag team Survivor Series match from the first Survivor Series that went over 40 minutes. So I was with 87, five teams versus five teams. Still my favorite match ever. I'm trying to think who was in that match. You're going to have to help me out, I think. You had on the heel side, you had the Dream Team. You had Haku and Tama, the Islanders. You had Demolition. You had, I think, Volkov and Zukov. And one other team that's escaping me. Was it the Conquistadors, maybe? Oh, no, the Dream Team. It was Bravo and Valentine. Right. And on the face side, you had Strike Force, you had the British Bulldogs, you had the Fabulous Rougeos, you had the Killer Bees, and the Young Stallions. That was a barn burner of, among barn burners. And like, it, it, if you can't imagine a match in WWF with guys often north of 250, 260, going balls to the wall for 40 minutes, that's the match. And you research your favorite match of all time. You, how many? Yes. If you had to put a number on how many times you've seen it, would it be over 100 times or maybe not, no. that, not that much? No, 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 not that much, but at least 50 times, at the very least. What about the best show you've ever attended live? I mean, All, all, in. all In's probably got to be up there, isn't it? But any, any other shows that uh, match match up to that or come close to it? Well, my, my broadcast partner, Mike, and I, we were at the original Double or Nothing, which was really special. Like, I loved that show like no other. But um, if you wanted a top three, it would be All In, the original Double or Nothing, at least of the shows I attended live, and the original Jake, Super Jacob. Yeah, I think All In and, and the, the first Double or Nothing are maybe the two most popular answers I get for that. Uh, and obviously WrestleManias are always popular choices um, because they're, they're such big occasions. I mean, is there a favourite WrestleMania you went to at all? Oh boy, that's a loaded question because I went to everyone from 15 to 32, 33. Um, I would have to say the one in, in Toronto with Hogan Rock. Uh, 18. Is it 18? Yeah. It may have been. I My memory is shit. Yeah, 2002? And... Obviously, yes. Jer- yeah, Jericho, yeah, Jericho right. and Triple H had the uh, the task of having to follow 
Hogan and Rock. Right. I remember. In fact, there may have actually been a women's match in between. Now I come to think of it. But it's don't, been don't, so long. don't ask me who who the women were. But yeah, that was uh, yeah WrestleMania 18 in Toronto. I mean, Hogan. Did it surprise you how over Hogan was in that match? Because I mean, no. he. I mean, Canada was. They loved him in Canada, particularly Toronto. And it kind of always baffled me why WCW didn't go to Canada more, especially once well, they got Brett. Very true. The problem was WCW at the time was really disorganized. <laughs> Trust me, it was there. Um, there's, they never really got the tax situation with Canada down pat. And it's a pain in the ass if you have to keep withholding tax for all your wrestlers on every show you do because you don't have a local entity to which you could go. And um, they never really realized the potential. But I was not surprised that Hulk was over because he was always over in Canada. Always. And going going back to Skydome even, he was wrestling Ultimate Warrior and he didn't get mm -hmm. booed against the Warrior. Yeah, and the right. Warrior was the hottest thing in wrestling at the time. I mean, Hogan was always going to get a good reaction. However, I would have not expected it to be this strong. What about you? Yeah, I think that would be most people's uh, opinion of it that they would have thought it'd be more split uh, but it, it certainly wasn't I mean there, there probably were rock fans there but it definitely felt more I mean what would you say 70 30 maybe even higher in Hogan's favor I would say so I would say so I mean Hogan Hogan really knew how to manipulate the situation and I think that's the biggest compliment you can pay the man that he always knew how to get himself over and it it, it made for an interesting atmosphere that i feel would never be duplicated like i i'm a, I'm a big fan of the sky dome anyway i think it, it looks amazing and i i was so happy when ufc went there for the show in, in toronto with randy couture and uh, fighting and gsp fighting it was just amazing it felt like a wrestlemania with ufc fighters if that makes any sense but uh, as far as other wrestlemanias i thought were really memorable I went to the first one in New Orleans with Undertaker Brock. Right, I was just going to ask you because I've had I've had a few people on who were there when the yeah. streak. Obviously, that was where the streak ended. What What was your reaction to that? Well, I, I had an interesting view on that because I was seated right behind the production guys, and I saw the panic <laughs> on people's faces when the referee counted three because they had the wrong graphic queued up. Nobody had clued them in. They probably all thought it was a big fuck-up, and that's why it took a while for the actual new record to be up on screen, because those guys were keying it in right in front of me. People were running around ah, like okay. headless chickens. It felt like somebody had been double-crossed. It was probably the best-kept secret in all of wrestling that night, and you could have heard a pin drop in that arena. It was a huge, a huge arena. But if, if I had yelled something at a person at the other side of the arena after that they finish happened, they yeah. would have heard me easily. But do you think that, um, I mean, <clears throat> I think I think it may have been uh, Damian Gonzalez I have on, on the podcast who said that he witnessed people actually leaving after Taker lost. Did you see any of that go on? I wasn't paying attention. I was trying to explain to my boss at the time who was there for the first time at a wrestling event <laughs> why this was so significant and why people not reacting was actually a good thing because it meant they were shocked, legitimately shocked. I didn't really see a lot of people leave. But the, the people in New Orleans were pretty were pretty good about, about sitting through stuff anyway because the Hall of Fame ceremony that, that year, it felt like it went on forever and nobody left. 
like when Austin was talking and people were like, okay, please keep talking, please keep talking. And he kept talking and nobody really seemed to mind. And I, I felt that a lot of folks stayed, stayed there because of Dan, the Daniel Bryan match. I mean, that was the big story come aside from Brock and Taker coming out of that WrestleMania, just Daniel Bryan winning the title. And that, that was the main event. I've, I've sort of asked people before, do you, do you think the streak ending took anything away from Daniel Bryan's victory? Do you think, obviously, the, the, I think it's fair to say that the um, the fans in attendance that evening were completely stunned. And it, it really took the, um, what's, the what's the phrase? Um, it, it really sort of took the wind from their sails. But I, I still think they reacted the same way they would have done anyway to Daniel Bryan winning. That's how over Daniel Bryan was. I think anyone else been in the main event, they maybe would have struggled, I don't know, but everyone wanted to see that moment with Daniel Bryan and they got it. So, But when people were leaving the building, do you think they were talking more about Daniel Bryan's big moment or talking about the streak ending? I didn't really get to experience that because we stayed behind until everybody oh, was okay. gone. Right. We still had a couple of, of, of people to talk to after the show and we couldn't really leave until like one or two in the morning. By that time, everybody was gone already. And you, you, when when you're at, a, at the WWE pay-per-view, the section behind production is, is for family and friends. So typically, people who work for the company or are affiliated with the company in any way, shape, or form, you don't really have any wrestling fans there because they don't want the wrestling fans looking into the monitors to see what's queued up. That makes any sense. That's why the seats usually don't get sold on that side. So I didn't really get to interact with anybody, but... Um, you could tell that after after the Taker match ended, people were, as you said, deflated. But unlike when Hangman and the Dark Order lost, they weren't they at least weren't angry. And I think that's the important part why Daniel Bryan and his story was able to get people back into the match, into the show, because after the Taker match, they were dead for like half an hour. Do you, if think... you remember? Sorry, go. On. Yeah, but you, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think the streak ending was a mistake? Do you think they no. should? You think that, that, that you think it was the right decision? It was the right decision with the right guy. I know people get block shit for being for being a part time wrestler, but nobody means more in in, in, in WWE. Right. Yeah. Like legitimately, legitimately in the mainstream and in in, in sports circles, there is nobody else in in, in WWE who has Brock Lesnar's name. That's the guy who gets to go on ESPN to tell people where he's signing. You know, show me a rest, another wrestler who gets to do that. Like for as, as far, just consider that Brock Lesnar is is one of very few people. I want to see maybe the only one who's in three different sports franchise video games. He's in the WWE games, he's in the UFC games, and he's still in Madden NFL as well. Right. Yeah. Show me any. Show me anybody who has that breadth and that. Um, that tenacity over a period of 20 years to still he's still as relevant today as he was in 2004 maybe even more so maybe even more so exactly he never got overexposed he never had a stupid gimmick he never was anything but himself yeah because they're sort of asking you know who means more to the smackdown numbers right now is it brock or becky and, and no offense to becky who, who who's over like crazy and and I think it's been great for the company, but I mean, it's it's more down to Brock easily. I mean, it's Brock that's really uh, bringing the more eyeballs in, and I think that um, I mean, him and Roman they've worked together a few times uh, before. It's not a fresh matchup by any means, but never this dynamic where you've got 
you know, Roman is the heel, Brock is the babyface, and you've got Paul Heyman with Roman. I think that makes for an intriguing matchup. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would argue that, that, that Roman Reigns was always the heel when he fought Brock. Well, <laughs> but <yeah. laughs> the Paul Heyman thing is definitely an inter- interesting wrinkle because if you know the personal um, background, the friendship, the um, business relationship that Brock and Heyman have had for the past 15 years or so. Well, yeah, even more even more longer than that, yeah. Because when Brock came in, what, 2002? So we're, we're getting on for 20 years. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they really only got close when Brock was in the UFC. That's when they really got close. Right. Because, they, I mean, they, they worked together before that. Obviously, he, Paul Heyman was his manager. But, yeah, it was really UFC. And Paul was there through, you know, the, the diverticulitis thing. And, and that Brock was really ill. I mean, he, he almost died. I mean, we, we can go so far as to say that, right? I mean, it, it was really quite a great situation at one point. He was basically on death's door. Yeah. And the really stunning thing is that his his... The majority of his UFC career, he fought at 30% capacity. Exactly. Imagine what he would have been like at 100%. Well, he probably still wouldn't like to take punches. But, um, <laughs> well, I mean, people say he has a glass chin. That's not true. If you if you watch the fight against Shane Carwin, who hit him with everything, but the ki- everything including the kitchen sink and Brock, yeah. weathered through it, weathered the storm and stayed in the match and finished him in the second round, I think that says more about Brock's tenacity and toughness than anything else will. And I'll, I'll give you another quote. Cain Velasquez said that he may have won the, the fight against Brock, but Brock won the war because Cain was never the same after that fight. His elbow, his, his, his shoulder from when he posted his arm and Brock took him down. Everything that happened later in terms of injuries began in that fight. And Cain's the first to admit it. We go all over the place on this podcast. We go off on tangents. I'm not even sure how we got to all that. I, 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 no, I do, I do know. I do know because it was talking about WrestleMania 30 and, and the streak ending. But uh, sticking with WrestleMania and Undertaker for a moment, you were there. Were you there for both of the Sean matches? Because it's, there's always that great debate which one was better, the first or the second. And I, I kind of feel that maybe they were both sort of on par with each other. I thought they were both great matches. But do you have a personal favourite out of the two? I preferred the first one. Yeah. I think that's probably but, the, the most the most popular answer to that. Well, maybe it's also being in a, a different mindset. I, I still enjoyed wrestling more when they had their first match than when they had their second match. I, I literally walked out after the second match was done. I didn't even wait until the end of the show. I just wanted to get out of there. Just because the shows were beginning to get really long. And my patience was beginning to wear really short. So that was a bad combination. <laughs> but... All things considered, I enjoyed the first match more. But I understand when people say that the second match was better or they were on the same level. You know, it's, it's, it's opinions. And I just felt on the day that I enjoyed the first one more than on the day I enjoyed the second one. Well, I would probably say my favorite match they had was maybe the first Hell in a Cell. I, I still don't think there's been a Hell in a Cell match that compares to that one. I, I thought that was maybe the best match they've had. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think yeah, it's all opinions. I mean, if you were to say the second one was better than the first one, and yeah, you know, no one's going to disagree with that. I mean, you know, it's just opinions. But um, so you attended everyone from fifteen to thirty-two. You said so. Did you miss out on the whole Ronda thing, or was thirty-two the first one that Ronda was on? I'm trying to think now because um, that's a problem. I can remember stuff 
30 years ago but ask me what happened sort of five years ago and i've got no idea but so i think i think ronda i think ronda was on 32 was she not i'm trying to think just to cut this short i dealt with ronda extensively when i worked with the ufc and i have no intention of ever seeing her again Uh, watching her matches (laughs) or being around her and that's all i'm going to say about ronda okay fair enough we will (laughs) we'll go no further on that one then (laughs) now yeah some people you just get along with other people you don't get along with as well and ronda for me was in the in the latter category so I tend, to, I, I'm not the type of person who hate watches something. So when Rhonda came on the channel, I came off the channel. But she was a great fighter, and I, I'm sure she would have had a great, a great future in wrestling if she had committed herself to it properly. But um, she wasn't a different headspace at the time, and well, her and WWE didn't really see eye to eye on many things. No. I, I don't know if she'll come back or not, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But anyway, the um, the final question, well, I don't know if it be the final question because there's, there's lots more I want to talk to you about, but the final question I always ask everyone is if you could change one thing about the business, what would it be? So is there one thing in particular that you think needs to change or, or something that you don't particularly like about wrestling that you think, well, I wish they could, that could be different? That's a, it's a very good question, first of all, and I think it's also something that deserves a lot of thought. But off the cuff, I would say the divisiveness, the us versus them mentality, um, fans just being unable to enjoy watching a product, overanalyzing things, losing yourself in the weeds on things like ratings and buy rates. And, you know, I feel that all this information we have today has led to people enjoying wrestling less and being a lot more tribal and a lot more territorial about what they watch instead of just letting everybody enjoy what they enjoy and not trying to ruin it for them if that makes any sense no it makes complete sense because i i I obviously we're, we're both members of the fight game podcast facebook group and and um one particular guy in there scott young always has very positive things about to say about wbe and and he gets a bit of a hard time sometimes from people but i say if that's what he likes if that's what he enjoys then more power to him i mean everyone's entitled to like what they like and um i kind of feel a bit envious of people that can just sit back and watch wrestling and just enjoy it because i think we're all a little bit guilty of being a little bit analytical at times Oh, yeah. um, and you know we do pick things apart and i'm not going to blame people like dave Meltzer for the whole ratings thing and that becoming a big thing but yeah you do kind of sit back and go oh, i would have given that five stars i would have given that four stars or whatever and it can sort of take away your enjoyment at times but, but um i have to say the last aw pay-per-view if i was to give that something out of 10 I'd be hard pushed not to give it 10. I mean, I'm sure if I sat down and thought about it, well, I, I could find some things I didn't like, like, I mean, Big Show and, well, sorry, Paul White and um, QT Marshall wasn't perhaps my cup of tea. I didn't really see what needed to be there. So maybe that stops it being a 10, but that's just picking holes for the sake of it. I mean, on the whole, it was an absolutely, from start to finish, wonderful show i mean for you where does that show rank in terms of shows you've seen over the years because for me it was it had everything it was a pretty perfect show if there's any and there's no such thing as a perfect show but that was pretty close to it i thought it was it went as well as it could have possibly gone it was a 
a perfect storm, having that many new people debut on one show, having that many special moments, having everybody be on the ball. I mean, Britt Baker, and I, I, I hate to say that AEW's women's division, division is weak or bad, but a lot of people weren't expecting Britt Baker and Chris Deathlander to be able to have a level uh, a match of that level. And I loved the fact that they pulled it off. I loved that little moment when Orange Cassidy went completely out of character <laughs> and started yelling. Yeah. It's it's small stuff like that that really pays you off for being a a student of the product. And I feel that it had so many moments that did exactly that for people who keep watching and are invested that it would be hard for me to find any pay-per-view in a long time that was better than this pay-per-view. And personally, I... my. I'm not a huge fan of having a match on a card just to have it on the card. But I understand that you needed a buffer between the the Jericho match at the main event, uh, the, 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 the Punk match in the main event. Mm-hmm. And that role kind of was filled quite well by Big Show and or by Paul White and Cutie Marshall. I mean, it was never going to be an interesting match. It was never going to be a barn burner, but it was kind of a, a palate cleanser. And if, if you consider how how spent people were when the main event started and how long it took Christian and Kenny to get people back into the match, I feel that if the main event had started earlier, we, we hadn't had that QT match, that the main event might have been even colder than it was reaction-wise for a long time. I'm not sure if that's a fair statement, but... Um, no, absolutely, yeah. No, and also for... Obviously, with the time difference, I mean, I actually watched the show live, so it didn't start over here until 1 a.m., and it's nearly 5 a.m. before it's finished, so I kind of was ready for, for Christian and, and Kenny to get in the ring, and I kind of could do could, could have done without the whole Paul White and QT Marshall, but as you say, mm. that everything has its, has its place, and, and that was in the absolute right spot on the card. I, I don't think it would have worked anywhere else. I think it was the absolute right spot. And out of the three surprises on the show, I think in many ways, Minoru Suzuki was perhaps the best one because everyone kind of... I mean, not sorry, everyone didn't know that Brian Danielson was going to be there, but it was kind of... not. It wasn't. You weren't hit over the head with it as much as you were with, with Punk in Chicago. I mean... They did everything but tell you, basically, that Punk was going to be there. Um, it wasn't quite to that extent, but a lot of people kind of assumed that Danielson was going to be there. But Adam Cole, I mean, that was... I mean, again, it was rumoured, but that was... You kind of thought to yourself, OK, we're not going to get Danielson, we're going to get Cole instead. And then for them both to debut, I thought it was done really, really well. And um, Minoru Suzuki, I don't think anyone saw that one coming, did they? I mean, I hadn't heard that rumoured anywhere. It's been out there, but okay. nobody had it for for All Out. Everybody who was talking about Minoru Suzuki was talking about him for um, Full Gear. Right. So him showing up at, at All Out was definitely a surprise. And honestly, I, 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 I don't want to say that I wasn't as into Adam Cole coming in, but as an old-school wrestling fan, as an old-school MMA fan, Pancration fan, um, grappling fan, Minoru Suzuki is as close to God mm-hmm. as you're going to find in yeah. Japan, for me personally. So see, seeing him come out and, and knowing 
how much it means to a guy like John Moxley to be able to have that match after all the shit he went through before he came to AEW and after after being completely disenchanted with his 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 love for the sport of wrestling just being being able to for him to realize all facing all these Japanese legends at least once it made it special and I loved the fact that people in Chicago treated Minoru Suzuki Suzuki like he was a big deal because usually when you have random Japanese people show up that had never been on TV before <laughs> the history was that they didn't get a great reaction like Liger for instance in his first match in WCW right. he got crickets until he started wrestling then he got over but or take Yuji Nagata take take people who were in WCW and in TNA and who never really got over and this crowd was a hundred percent behind Minoru Suzuki I well, mean, they, they, cheered, they cheered him taking down John Moxley. I think it was interesting because, obviously, Kojima was really over. And I, I, I'm watching it, I was thinking to myself, well, if they're going to react like this to Kojima, imagine what it would be like if they got someone like Tanahashi. And then Minoru Suzuki turned up at the end <laughs> of the match. And I was like, okay, well, I, don't need to, I don't need to wonder because here's Minoru Suzuki and they're going absolutely crazy but uh yeah it was um yeah I think All Out was as perfect a show as you're gonna see and it's it's really I would say right now it's perhaps the most exciting time in the business for for what 20 years maybe oh, definitely I gotta ask you something because you keep asking me questions I got a question for you what was your favorite match of the card that's a very interesting one because I loved obviously the Lucha Bros against uh, the Bucks. I thought that was fantastic. But I'm kind of more into the FTR style of tag team wrestling. So I may be in the minority, but I kind of preferred the Bucks versus FTR more than I did them and the, and the Lucha Bros. Uh, but I I don't know because I really love Punk and Derby. I thought that was a really great match. I might even say that was perhaps my favorite one on the show. It's an embarrassment of virtues either way, and you make a very good point with Darby and Punk. I felt that under the circumstances, it was the perfect match to work, the perfect way they did it. I mean, Darby had, was having a Punk match, essentially. And I think it's better than the other way around, because Darby does have a little bit of a pace. <laughs> and... <laughs> Imagine being out for seven and a half years, including a two-year stint in the UFC that everybody wants to forget about, but hardly anybody can. Um, I thought it was perfect the way they did it. And what I appreciated, this is the one thing that I really loved about All Out before all other things. Every match was different, statistically. And CM Punk and Darby Allen had a match that nobody else in the card had, statistically. Yeah. Omega and Christian was different. I, you could argue that the first two matches were kind of similar, but I would disagree because the Eddie, Eddie Kingston Miro match was more of an all Japan strong style match, and Moxley and Kojima was more of a new Japan 90s mm -hmm. match. Yeah. That makes any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there is a difference between the two. Personally, my favorite match of the evening by far, and this is probably also going to surprise you, was Eddie Kingston and Miro. No, that would probably be maybe second or third on my list. I, I, yeah, I love that match as well. And to be fair, MJF and, and Jericho, I haven't been crazy about their matches up until this point. Uh, but I thought this was by far the best one they've had. Oh, but definitely. And I, I got to tell you, I was kind of with the crowd on that one. Like I 
had I had no doubt Jarek was going to win this until he lost. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I, I was yelling in the studio. Like, I, I legitimately thought it was a fuck up. And the way they did it, I mean, when, when Paul Turner showed up and talked to Aubrey Edwards, right then and there, the fans were, were nuclear hot for everything they did afterwards. And I had the same reaction. Like, I was like, you guys <laughs> gave me a heart attack here. <laughs> I thought they were going to screw Jericho out of a career there and do an angle down the line. And I'm so glad that they didn't. Even though the way they did it raised a couple of other questions about refereeing on the same card, but that's either here or there. Um, yeah, it was special. It was special. Just never do the guitar thing again, please. Oh, I thought that ruined Jericho. I mean, one of the best things about Jericho is, is his entrance and, and, and the fans singing along, and, and they really couldn't uh, with the, the way that was done. But, um, yeah, I think... Uh, obviously, you don't follow much WWE, or, uh, but um, Nakamura has this great entrance right now with um, Rick Boogs, um, and that kind of felt a little bit like that, but that, that's done really well. I didn't think this was done particularly well. Uh, but um, what about Jericho? I mean, do you, do you think Jericho... See... Part of me would have been fine if Jericho had lost that match because MJF is clearly one of the top guys in the future, without a doubt. Uh, he's probably the best heel in the business. I don't know if there's anyone that really compares to him right now. But um, Jericho, to me, he's kind of done it all. He, he, he is one of the all-time greats, without a doubt. What do you see his role being from this point forward? I think he's going to get a lot of dream matches for himself. For instance, a couple of months ago, I put a tweet out that it was a crime that Sting and Chris Jericho had never wrestled each other. And Chris Jericho ended up being the first person to like that tweet. So I know it's, it's in the back of his head. I know he wants to wrestle Sting, and I know Sting wants to wrestle him. So mm -hmm. that's something I do see happening. I, I think he's going to give Sammy a lot more rub in the future. Still, I, I think he's going to be more in a... In a similar role to, to, to the role that Sting has right now. Only a lot louder. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if he's yeah. I'm not sure if he's gonna if he's gonna go into commentary full time or even part time. Um if he does, I hope he goes back to, to the way he did commentary when he and Tony Shimani oh, did, yeah, did those pandemic yeah. shows. Yeah. Uh, it, to me that was that was the best broadcasting team I've seen since Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon together. Like they totally gel from from the first second, and it was fun just listening to them analyze things. Yeah, I I also always think that two man booth is the way to go. That's that's one thing I don't like about Rampage is the four man thing. I I actually think that Taz and Excalibur, just them alone would be, would be fine because it, they do a great job on Dark. They so do. I think them on Rampage. I don't see. The need, and I, I love Mark Henry, but I, I don't see the need for him to be there really. Um, so I, I think um, if it was Jer and, and Jericho, I don't think it needs to be there either. I think Taz and Excalibur would be would be fine as the uh, team for for Rampage. But um, what do you make of the the commentary as a whole? Obviously, you have a different perspective doing it yourself. But um, Jr. obviously is one of the all maybe I would say Jr.'s the all time greatest announcer. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. Would you share that opinion as well? I wouldn't, personally, I because I can't stand the guy. But okay. um, no, but I'm just joking, obviously. <laughs> um, 
I think JR has been on a roll the last couple of weeks. I, I think he's he's the strongest that he's been since joining AEW. And that's a good thing. Because he did have a couple of lapses over the years, like calling Kenny Omega the WWE champion, which Kenny kinda liked not. Um Mark Henry, I think, it would be more valuable in the role as pre main event interviewer. I think that segment's gonna get over and his urge time for the main event, I think that's gonna be a thing in the future. That's going to be on T-shirts. He did have a couple of really good one-liners in, in the last two episodes of Rampage, so I think he's getting more comfortable. But in general, his his the way he speaks is not conducive to being a broadcaster. The slow southern drawl is not really the the way you you want your broadcasters to be. But what I appreciate about Tony Tony Khan in this case is that he gives people a chance to see how good they are, and I know. I know Mark Henry, and I know that he's the type of person who, if he feels that he's not doing a good job, is going to take himself out of that role. But I feel it's still really too early to to judge. But in general, I would agree that a two-man booth would be perfect. Because when your product is packed with action, you really need something to anchor that. And I feel a two-man broadcast booth would do wonders for, for Rampage. Especially Rampage, because Rampage only has an hour usually. So everything's got to be really tight, 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 tight. And if the commentators are also all over the place, it's, it, can feel like, it can feel like too hectic at times. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. Who, who, who are some of the guys that you, I say, look up to? Or, or who, who are some of the guys that you really revere as announcers over the years? From over the years? Bobby Heenan? Bobby and Gorilla were my all-time favorite team on primetime wrestling. Like, just the the interplay they had, you could tell that they were antagonistic on the air, but you could tell they had a deep friendship. Oh, absolutely, and yeah. It, it really, I, it still brings a smile on my face whenever I see primetime. Um, as far as, as, as commentators, Gordon Soli used to be, used to be a god. I really like Jim Cornette on commentary especially when he's doing the straight commentary like he did in OVW for a while. Um, I personally think the best story of the 2020s so far is Tony Schiavone coming back to, to wrestling. Yeah. Like he, JR, JR comes off like a cranky old dude at times. Tony comes off like a kid in a candy store just being happy to be there and having fun again. And what they did with him and Britt Baker, which is based on their real relationship it, 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 I think it's, 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 it breaks a mold on the one hand because the face, the face commentator shouldn't be friends with a heel, with a heel wrestler, so that's never been done before. But it also shows a genuine humanity and honest emotion between the two that that I feel make Brit a bigger star and Tony a bigger deal. I appreciate that sort of thing, thinking outside the box and allowing people to be themselves within reason. I think with Tony, obviously there was many years where he wasn't announcing. And I think that um, because he was there through all the the trials and tribulations in WCW, the high and then the the really bad low, uh, I, I think that that really, you could see towards the end, he wasn't the same announcer that he was. I mean, it, it, and, it, and who would be, you know, with that product at the end that was so 
awful. And it's, it's great to see Tony now, as you say, I mean, killing a candy store is a really good way of saying it. I mean, he, he, he really looks excited to be there. Delight, loving wrestling again. Someone that it seems like the, the passion for it is back again after I can understand, you know, why it was lost for all those years. I mean, anybody who lived through WCW could tell you that most people have that reaction. WCW drove Bobby Heenan to become an alcoholic. I mean, right. yeah. what what more do I need to say? The only person who was completely content was Larry Zabisco. But that's because he never gave a shit anyway. He just did his <laughs> thing, was in and out. I mean, they don't call him the living legend for nothing, right? He knew what he knew what what to expect. He got in, he got his paycheck, and he was happy to take, to do it. But people actually cared about what they were doing at the time. People like Bobby Heenan, Mike Tenay, um, Tony Schiavone even, they got more and more disinterested the more disjointed the product became. And I feel in Tony's, it, it showed in Tony's work at the end. And if you if you consider how often he got, he got votes for worst announcer in wrestling, that's pretty telling because that isn't Tony. That was WCW Tony during the end, like when everything was lost. And just to see him now, he, he's probably never going to be in, in the running for best announcer, but he should be in the running for happiest announcer. Well, I've had both Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds on to talk about the book, The Death of WCW, and um, we've gone over it in great length. But for someone that was kind of there for some of it, I mean, what what is your perspective on the whole thing? Uh, obviously... <sighs> There was no one thing that killed the company, I don't think. I think it was a, a combination of several things. You can't say that, oh, Vince Russo came in and his booking was so bad. I mean, the company was pretty bad anyway by that point. I, I don't know if, even if Russo had been great and had been the, the saviour that people thought he was going to be at one point, it still probably wouldn't have survived. And ultimately, AOL Time Warner, the merge kind of killed it and, and the fact they had no... TV anymore was kind of what, but, but the death now there. But if they were drawing the same ratings in 2001, they were drawing in 97, 98. Obviously, they would never have been put out of business, would they? I mean, that's a pretty obvious thing to say. But hello, you still there? I'm still here. Are you still there? <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for you to finish your question. Oh, I, 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 I'm just saying. I mean, it, it, they. The question was, I mean, if. That's obviously a pretty, pretty obvious thing to say, but that is pretty much the case, isn't it? I mean, if they were doing the ratings in 2001, they were in 97, 98. I mean, they would have been crazy to take Nitro off the air at that point. Well, I do have a certain perspective on that because it was part of the negotiations to, to buy WCW and to, to keep it going. Um, my personal view, and again, I don't want to state this as fact, but it is what I feel is that then WWF COO, Stu Snyder, who was a former Turner guy, went to his buddies to make sure that WCW goes off the air because without the television deal, there's very little value in the package. And they could get it at a fire sale rate where they ended up paying about 10% of what we had put together with, F with Fusion, with Eric Bischoff's, uh, Eric right. Bischoff's team. Yeah. And um, a lot, I just happened to know the numbers because a lot of that money came from Germany, from the German WCW partners. 
because WCW was still the, the king of the roost in Germany and we really didn't want to, want to see it go away. In fact, we wanted to bring it, bring more of WCW to Europe in 2002, 2003. But um, with, obviously without the television deal, it's, it wasn't worth it anymore because you needed the money coming in from Turner in order to keep the company profitable. Even with a with a shrunken uh, <laughs> a shrunken list of wrestlers, and to get back to your original question, I believe that it was a combination of many things that led to WCW's downfall, and one of them was predicting perfection. Because when WCW was hot, anything that Eric did and any request he okayed kind of worked out because. There was enough money coming in, but when the creative became so bad that people were actively stopping watching and the revenues fell and you still had the same costs because people were getting guaranteed contracts of like what Stevie Ray getting a million dollars a year or maybe even more towards towards the end, that was going to that was going to wreck them anyway. Even if a lot of the contracts were on the Turner books and not the WCW books up, but um when the revenue starts falling and you can't scale your cost, you you're bound to go out of business eventually. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as I say, you've got a, a perspective that um, is unique uh, because, I mean, as you say, I mean, you were heavily involved in in perhaps uh, what could what could have been. I mean, who knows what would have happened? But um, it certainly was a very sad day when WCW folded because. I mean, I was a big fan of it at one point, and as a lot of people were. And I think, obviously, Hogan coming in in 94 was such a big deal at the time. And I think that, um, obviously, 96... Well, 95 was when Nitro started, wasn't it? But 96, with, um, or, yeah, with, Hogan, uh, with um, Hogan turning heel and, and joining up with Hall and Nash, that original NWO, ang NWO angle really carried that company for a while but obviously that everyone became a member of the nwo and it got so watered down at one point i mean yeah you can't point your finger at one particular thing there were so many creative decisions that in hindsight were bad ones i mean goldberg's streak ending i mean is that one of those moments for you where you kind of go that should never have happened well it definitely should have happened the way it did and at the, at the time it did i thought they hot-shotted it. I thought it backfired badly and it damaged Goldberg. And henceforth the company, because Goldberg was really hot at the time. If they had done it a year later, maybe not with a taser finish, I think it, it might have had legs, especially if he had done it for somebody who was on the up and up. Yeah, yeah. So somebody upcoming. You know, just some, somebody who was going to be a star for 10, 15 years to come and not Kevin Nash. I mean, he wasn't going to be wrestling for more than 15 more months total. Based then, on any high level. And then for Nash to just lay down for Hogan as well. I mean, that, that's not the worst possible follow-up that you could have gone yeah. with. And then, and the year before that, I mean, Starcade 97 is a, an easy one to point to as well. With that match that had so much investment in it. So many people were into Hogan versus Sting. And then it was just a complete train wreck. I mean... Uh, no. I don't. I don't believe there was one match in WCW that turned off so many longtime viewers as that match did. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Even even Warrior Hogan, which was a worse match, a far worse match. But um, I mean, every, I think everyone going into it kind of knew that was going to be bad. 
but uh, Hogan and Sting, that match had so much intrigue and it had been built up so well. And yeah, I mean, the execution couldn't have been any worse. Nobody cared about Warrior. Warrior was a WWE product. Nobody in WCW yeah. cared about. I mean, do Warrior. you think? Do you, are you of the belief that that was only done so Hogan can get his win pack? I mean, that's the yeah. That's the kind of one kind of feels. Yeah, hundred percent, one hundred percent. But the, the difference between the Hogan Warrior match, which was which was horrible, and the the Hogan Sting match, which ended up being horrible in, in execution, or in finish rather, was that people in WCW saw Sting as being Mister WCW. Right. And WCW shit on those fans on that day. And yes, you don't always want to give people what they want when they want it, but that was such a big misstep. I can't point to anything in the, any one match in WCW's history that had so many negative repercussions. Yeah, that was probably... I'd say there was a lot more to that than, than, than Goldberg losing the following year. Because as you say, I mean... With the Goldberg thing, it's all about how you, where you go from there. I mean, and again, it was completely the wrong person to lose to as well. But we could be here all day talking about various different things, and I would love to to have you back on. Uh, I know it's very, very late for you as it is for me right now, but um, I would love to have you back on to talk more about your career because obviously today has been more about talking about you as a fan and and how you're fandom has evolved but um just one last thing i mean when did your involvement in wrestling begin i mean what was your f- sort of first role in wrestling the first sort of job you had i i wrote for wrestling magazines back in 1990 1991 that was one thing but um back then you didn't really get paid for that sort of work my first paid gig was distributing smoky mountain wrestling videotapes oh, okay. in in the german-speaking territories and I mostly dealt with Tim Horner there, but I did have a a lot of uh, casual contact with with Cornette back in the day as well. And he, he here's one uh, one small story before before I go. Wrestling is such a small industry. When Jim Cornette was was growing up, his best friends at the time, and they were inseparable, were Kenny Bolin and a guy named Norman Dooley. Yeah, all three from the Louisville area. I had. The tape thing with Cornette. Then Norm Dooley sent me American wrestling promotion tapes about every two days for 15 years. And he saved my ass professionally a couple of times because the master tapes we got from ECW and WCW sometimes were so late that we had to take him out of the box, put him right into the, the VCR and go into the studio so they could air. And without Norm we would have never been able to prepare for those shows. I would have, would have had to go in blind. And Kenny Bolin, he and I have been, have been his, his entire family has been social friends of mine for about two decades now. Three guys from Louisville, all connected to one bloke in Germany for, <laughs> for vastly different reasons. Well, sometimes it, 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 it can be a very small world at times exactly and <laughs> never burn a bridge try not to burn bridges because you're going to run into those same people again yeah. and if you're not going to run into those same people you're going to run into friends of those people like if i if i had mistreated anything with smoky mountain wrestling you can bet your ass that Cornette would have burned my name to anybody in his circle circle of friends i would have never been able to get those tapes from from norm i would have never been able to become 
really good friends with Kenny and his family. It's all connected. And that's part of why I said if there was one thing I would like to change, it's it's this tribalism in, in wrestling and the the burning bridges on your way out everywhere. And people expecting uh, people to say negative things about former employers, about former tag team partners, about anybody who's not currently in their circle. Because it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. What, what, what is it they say is only six degrees of separation, isn't there? So Yeah. And in <laughs> wrestling, because half people are inbred, it's maybe three. That was, was a, a, a Kentucky joke, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, you have to say that again. I missed that. I said in wrestling, with about half the people being inbred, it's maybe only three. <laughs> There, there was a joke that the, the entire front row of OBW had a collect, uh, combined 12 teeth. Yeah, well, what's the famous one about people from Kentucky? They, they don't brush their teeth, they brush their tooth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know many people from Kentucky who obviously do not conform to the stereotype, but I can tell you that having been at the Davis Arena many, many times, I've never seen a scarier bunch of wrestling fans in my life. <laughs> and that includes while I was working for ECW. And now, consider... Consider how much that carries. I mean, just look at the zoo that was ECW Arena. Like, if you walked in there, it smelled like a petting zoo, and that was before anybody got in the ring. <laughs> and it wasn't the wrestlers, if you catch my drift. No. And no. in OVW, the Davis Arena, God bless these folks, but holy shit. Like, I would bet that the half of them wrestling is still real. Oliver. This has been an absolute David. pleasure to have you on, on the show. And, and, and like I said, I would love to have you back on at some point as well, because there's so many more stories that we haven't obviously got to because of the confinements of the of, of the show. And obviously I ask everyone the same set of questions. And you were kind of a little bit like, what, really? You ask everyone the same set of questions on every show? But mm. um, that's kind of like the whole idea of the podcast is to, to see how people's fandom has evolved over the years how they became because i mean the name of the show is how i caught the wrestling bug and i think you'd have to agree with this once you've caught the bug you never really lose it i mean there's times when you may have lost interest and you drift away from it but it always sort of comes back to you doesn't it your love for wrestling it does and it also affects a lot of other things you do in your life like when I worked with the UFC, a lot of the things that helped put the company on the map were taken directly from wrestling. Wrestling is about getting people to park with their money against their better judgment. And that to me sounds like marketing for any company in, in any corner of the economy. If you understand how to make people care about something they shouldn't be caring about, that's half your job done. Just one final question and I'll let you go. Of all the people you've come across in wrestling, who would you say left the biggest mark on you? Huh. I just thought I'd give you a nice sort of easy question to wrap up the show with. You know, I try not to get too close to people because it's not good to be an announcer and know too much. Right, yeah. So most of the people that I was really close to are either retired or dead. Right. And that kind of makes the question a bit grave because I don't want to do anybody any injustice. But if you put a gun to my head, my answer would be Bobby Hinn. By far. 
And I was very lucky to be able to spend a lot of time with him in his later years, up until almost the very end. And I'm never going to stop being thankful for that man's inspiration, for his kindness, and the really valuable things he'd, he taught me about broadcasting. And that's why I would pick him if he put a gun to my head. But there were really a lot of people who, for different reasons, were important to my life, both professionally and personally, be it because they were good friends. You know, like one um, rather big WWE star who still keeps writing me Christmas cards every year. And that's not something you expect, especially for a period of 20 years or something. Mm. You know, different people have had different effects on my life and in my professional life. But um, for people, for anybody that I've come in contact with, I would have to say Bobby Heenan. For people still alive and active in the world today, it would have to be Brock Lesnar. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Bobby Heenan is probably my favorite of all time i i I would say that he may be the greatest performer when when you think about the fact he i think he was the best color guy i think he was the best manager i ever saw and he was a pretty good wrestler i mean he was a he was a fantastic bump taker if you if you go back and that's why he was such a good manager i think because of the bumps he could take but i mean he could do it all i mean i always thought that he could have made it as a comedian um I, i i think he could have been like a variety show presenter he could have been like a tonight show like a johnny carson i mean he he had everything that you could possibly want and um yeah i absolutely loved bobby but and, and obviously never got to meet the guy but as you got to know him and um yeah i just yeah it's, it's just fantastic to hear you say that and and brock i mean very very different to bobby <laughs> but uh true but true. uh again i mean uh no one quite like brock lesnar is there you know, I, I really didn't appreciate him that much until I got to know him better in the UFC. Because when he was in WWE, he was always very standoffish. And right. yeah. he became a different person when he was a fighter, and especially after his diverticulitis. He's a very... I mean, you know that his political side is very conservative-leaning, and he's he hunts, and he does a lot of things that people today would consider barbaric or not... Not of this time, but as far as being somebody who's loyal and he's who's a man of his word, I would take a bullet for that man. You know, he he's somebody who can, who you can rely on. If he gives you his word, his word is gold. And I feel that, especially in a business like wrestling, there can't be enough people like him. And you, you can see that in, his, in, in, in all the people around him. He still surrounds himself with the same folks he went to high school with. Right. His high, his high school and college, his college wrestling coach was his head, head coach in the UFC. His best friend from, from high school is his manager and is his attorney. And even the training partners. I mean, there, there was one incident before the Keen Velasquez fight where Brock legitimately went into that fight with a busted eardrum courtesy of one of his training, of his training partners. You would expect him to, to eat that person alive and never book him again. He still trains with him to this day whenever Brock <laughs> trains. That That's what I mean with loyalty. And Here's the other thing. I've never heard that man make an excuse in his life. He took his losses like a man. He never complained. He never, he never talked about any injuries with which he went into fights. 
He never complained about his diverticulitis making it impossible to train. And I feel that that's that's special. It's it's something you don't get from many people. It's one of the reasons why I consider him one of the most important athletes of our generation. Uh, not wrestlers, athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on that note, um, I will wrap it up. But yeah, I, I could I could talk to you all night. I don't want to keep you any longer. But um, as I as I said many times, I would love to have you back if you were. You should. We should do that soon. And here's the thing: there's going to be a, a ton of dream matches coming up for all of us. Oh I yeah, think there's going to be a ton yeah. of opportunities to talk about them again. Well, you said you said about Tony being a, a kid in the candy store. Um, we're, we're all kids in candy stores right now. I mean, look at all the matches we're going to get. I mean, and uh, I, I, we're trying to wrap it up here. But um, obviously, <laughs> there's lots of rumors of guys who potentially could be coming in. When do you think enough is enough? I mean. Obviously, it's great to have Brian Danielson and Adam Cole and, and maybe, who knows, Bray Wyatt might come in. Who knows? But um, when do you think enough is enough? Never. You, think, you, you, would, mean, say, you would say sign them all up. Take Bray Wyatt. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you should always keep things fresh. And to do that, you should, need, you should be able to bring in new people. But at some point, you also got to have, got to, have to let people go. Right. And there are people who are really over in AEW who are really important to the product. There are other people who may not be as important. And once you've been there for two, three years and you don't really matter, it may be good to move on. I mean, Tony Tony is clearly a very social guy and somebody who doesn't just discard people. But he's also a businessman. And there's a saying that perfection is the biggest enemy of the good. Well, there's going to come a point at some point where someone does make the jump from AEW to WWE. That will happen at sure. one point. Uh, that's bound to happen at some point. Uh, but I uh, hope so. And that's that's good for that's good for wrestling. It's good for everyone. It, it's great exactly. that there's finally now because TNA had its moments, but it was never really competition. Um, and now we're at a point where someone is in a position to compete with WWE. And we, we, never, we thought at one point that was never going to happen. Here's the thing, TNA tried to be WWE. AEW is trying to be what people miss in WWE. Right. And I think that's an important distinction because one is trying to be a copy and the other is trying to be, be everything that people who don't like WWE would like. You know, from and again, I I'm not going to dump on WWE in any way, shape, or form. But it is clear that Vince is has been more in touch with his audience than he seems to be right now, which is logical. He's getting up there in age. He's surrounding himself with the same old guard, mm-hmm. bringing back people who don't really help him go forward. Um, he cut off Hunter's balls, which was telling, and not in a good way. Because I mean, let, let's be honest. Vince is going to be super frustrated. He has a son who gets wrestling, but wants no part of it on the corporate level. And he has a daughter who wants wrestling, but doesn't have any aptitude for it. So what do you do? I, I thought Triple H would have been a great choice. Um, Vince apparently doesn't share his vision anymore. And I don't want to say that there's trouble brewing, but it is very clear that Hunter's vision of NXT has been given the axe. And I can't fathom that he's not 
damaged goods right now in the bigger sense in WWE. Does that make any sense? Oh, it makes complete sense, yeah. Yeah. Because I think um, he has really been the full guy for NXT not being able to compete with AEW in the ratings. Would you say that was a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing. NXT was never conceptualized to be a two-hour-a-week wrestling program that competes on the top level. That's what that has never... Yeah, because everyone would say that NXT was much better when it was just a a show on the network um, before it went to USA Network and became a weekly... You know, show on a on a on a Wednesday now on a Tuesday night. Everyone harkens back to those days when NXT was was a much better product, and um, yeah, it, it, it's certainly not been the case for a while. I, mean, I still, I still like NXT to an extent. I mean, there's a lot of guys there I'm, I'm a fan of, but it clearly isn't the same product as it was. It isn't because it has different goals, though. They had yeah. it had it had to goals. change. They had to change the goalposts. The goalposts are shifting again now, so who knows what direction is going to go in. But even back in the day, the takeovers were spectacular. I, I went to the one in Brooklyn before SummerSlam in 2016, the one where Nakamura beat Joe and had the violinist coming out mm-hmm. with him. And that was was tremendous. It was a short show. It, it had Every match counted and every match was good. That, to me, was perfection. But... Even then, I didn't really enjoy the TV too much because it felt like an indie promotion when I was hoping for a major league promotion. And now they tried to do the major league stuff, but kind of lost what made it, what made NXT special in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if what they're doing now is going to help or if it's just going to camouflage the fact that NXT is fucked either way. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, it's sad to say, but it is. I mean, I, I can't see... Uh... Even down to like Kevin Dunn being involved in the production, you you kind of hear that and you and you do kind of groan when you when you hear that and yeah I I I think Vince as you say he's surrounding himself with you know yes men that you know he the same guys that have been there you know years ago who really aren't going to take the company forward and I think that's a real shame because I think what Triple H have been doing was great but as soon as those guys that he was building up came to the main roster i mean it's one after another of guys that just didn't succeed on the main roster because see we've, we we I've, I've said this many many times but if vince doesn't create you in the first place a lot of times he doesn't get it he doesn't, that's true and it, he I think a lot of times you're fucked if Vince has not been the one to create you. So when he gets like Finn Balor and, and Shinsuke Nakamura and all these guys, he's like, well, what do I do with them? I mean, he, he's always had a, a very particular vision of what a wrestler is supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, he'll look at someone like Finn Balor and go, well, he's far too small. Right. Um, but then he gets Keith Lee and does nothing with him. Yeah. How? Yeah. I like, don't know. This would be a guy who's right up Vince's alley. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the guy that is probably doing the best right now is probably Riddle, when you think about yeah. it. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll see for how long. And see how He's long that lasts, muscle. yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, t- I mean, Riddle, to me, could be another Kurt Angle, who you, who, who you bring in as this comedy character, but as soon as he gets in the ring, this guy can fucking go. I mean, yeah, I mean, he could be another, maybe not on the same level as Kurt Angle, because I think Kurt Angle was like a once-in-a-lifetime 
type of performer. But Riddle has a lot of upside to me. I, I think the guy is really, really good. And we haven't really seen what he can do on the main roster yet. Um, because yes, he's yes. kind of been put in that... He's kind of been pigeonholed, pigeonholed as a you know, comedy character, really. Well, it's because he's his own worst enemy. Well, that's like he has so many, enemy. so many people who hate his guts in WWE. Yeah, and he's not doing himself any favors by constantly talking out of turn and and posting stuff on on the internet that people would have gotten fired for in in years past. I mean, I, I don't blame Vince for not taking him seriously. I I personally didn't take him seriously when he was in the UFC. He was always a goof. Yeah. He's a talented goof. Oh yeah, he's a very yeah, very but, talented. Yeah. Again, he's his own worst enemy. He could be a much bigger star than he is if he didn't sabotage himself every chance he gets. And he's also not a young guy. He's what what thirty six or thirty seven now. Yeah, that's a problem as well. I mean, I can't see many guys in WWE who are under thirty. I mean, I did a show last week with um, Sebastian Garache from from the group, and we were looking at guys in AEW who are 30 or younger and there's a long long list of them but if you look at WWE I mean who have you really got I mean Austin Theory yeah um, I think Angel Garza maybe under 30 without looking his age up but there isn't really a number there isn't I mean Dominic Mysterio but I mean how <laughs> great he's going to be I, 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 I really don't know but it's I uh, want to I want to bet that that um, Hook is going to be a bigger star than Dominic Mysterio. I would I would say that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be making it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, yeah, I think the big issue with WWE is that people toil so long in their developmental system until they're way past thirty, and then they bring them on the main roster and don't know what to do with them. And I think AEW has a smarter approach to this. And again, without wanting to shit on WWE. But Dark and Dark Elevation is working in terms of getting people ready for television. You know, they, they're getting in their reps. They're, they're, they're uh, deepening their understanding of their own character and their strengths and weaknesses in a way where they're not, the spotlight isn't on them. And then once they get to Dynamite and once they get more, more matches on Dynamite and, and Rampage, the, Alex Reynolds and, and John Silver would be the best example for oh, that. Once they, get, once they get to the big show, they're ready. Right. Okay. So we've we've I've tried to wrap it up a couple of times, and we're we're still going. So I I think that might be a a good point to uh, to wrap up on that that bit of a, a silence there. I think it's probably maybe the point to to wrap it up. Oliver, um, as I said, it, it's been an absolute pleasure, and and we will definitely do this again very very soon. The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. And it's time to go to bed. Absolutely. So for Take- Oliver, I'm David signing off, and thank you for listening to another edition of the How I Caught the Wrestling Bug podcast.